a report for the closet kinematicist today. Roll moments, roll centers, virtual forces, inertial loads, mass centers, roll axes, and things of that nature. I am really going to try to stop your head from exploding during this one, but no guarantees, dude, as we step in lockstep into the Ron Jeremy Ghetto Engineering Lecture Theatre. You would not be the first person who has died during a beer garden dissertation such as this. I'm John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap for buyers here in Australia. Website for that, obviously. Or you can just click the card that's up there now, dude. My recent interview with suspension tuning legend Graham Gambold was quite the hit with you. So thank you very much for watching and commenting. If you did, I am presently working on Fat Cave Studio Guest 2.0. And if you missed G-Squared's interview, link up there and down there contemporaneously if my addled brain can remember to stick it in. However, some people did express states of confusion up to and including intracranial hemorrhage over some of those basics we discussed. So I thought we would just demystify a portion of that crap today. This video is also sponsored by Olite. Flash sale tonight, big discount from 8pm. Awesome new torch this time too. My new favourite everyday carry, the Olight Warrior Mini 2. Every criticism I had about the original Warrior Mini has been addressed, so ladies and gentlemen, we have a new winner. More on that in a minute. But first, let us talk about three-dimensional space and how after this you will never think about moving through it in the same way again. That's a promise. You really do need to know a few minutes of beer garden basics before we can burst that aneurysm up there in your head properly. This next bit is therefore just to get you primed and pump up the pressure. It's still a few minutes before you bleed from the ears and otherwise behave in the manner of Linda Blair from The Exorcist. Kinematics gets pretty complex pretty quickly, all right? But let us see how far down this track you can follow me without that telltale pressure building up in your ears. The basic problem here is that there are altogether too many different ways to move in three-dimensional space. There are six basic degrees of freedom, and only six unless you go totally science fiction, right? Let us use the Leyland King Dick 916 11/16s double open ender British Standard wrench, shall we? <laughs> the most enduring of all of the Leyland products, I think you'd agree. So, essentially there's three linear degrees of freedom. You can move forwards and backwards on this somewhat longitudinal axis, okay? You can move side to side in this transverse axis, and you can move up and down in this vertical axis. So we could call that X, Y, and Z. That's how they do it when you go to university and bend your brain in that sort of formal way. All right, and then there are the rotational equivalents to go with those axes. So if you rotate about the x-axis, you pitch the nose down or up, that would be pitching. That's one rotational degree of freedom. And then if you rotate about the y-axis, that would be roll. Okay, and if you rotate about 
the z-axis, that would be your, okay? And then you've got to figure out how do you describe positive and negative in each one of those senses, right? So you've got positive y, negative y, positive x, negative x, positive z, negative z, and then rotation gets a bit complex. How do you define positive and negative rotation? Well, you say right-hand rule. If this is the z-axis and that's positive, you put your thumb in the positive direction, your fingers point in the sense of positive rotation. So yawing to the left is positive, okay? And yawing to the right is negative because if you go in the negative direction, your fingers point that way to the right, that's negative. And the same thing with the z-axis and the x-axis, okay? So positive uh, rotation in pitch is nose up, for example, using that right-hand rule. Positive direction over here. And it helps to think of looking at me as like looking at a mirror when you do this stuff, okay? Because just the way the camera reverses everything, all right? So there's that. That means there's actually 12 different things to worry about, doesn't there? But it's not only that simple, okay? So let's bend our brains a little bit more. Movement, all of those movements in all of those ways around all of those and along all of those axes has displacement, velocity, and acceleration. So you can be moving forward having positive displacement from the origin, wherever you left home, and you can have positive velocity, and you can floor it and have positive acceleration or hit the brakes and have negative acceleration. And you can do the same thing in all of those angular ways as well. So there's actually velocity, displacement, and acceleration, and they work like this. Okay, you start with displacement. Velocity is the time rate of change of displacement, and acceleration is the time rate of change of velocity, and we're just nudging our toes over the cliff marked calculus to get there because you've really got to do the time derivative thing of each one of those. So anyway, what does that make it? 36 different things you need to know about a thing in three-dimensional space before you know exactly how it's moving. You need to know the displacement, velocity and acceleration and its sense, positive or negative, in each one of those ways. Okay, 36 different things. So that's kind of simple, isn't it? You can add them up like vectors or do whatever, okay? But it is still something that you have to think about when you think about a car moving. And if you're thinking about tuning suspension, you have to think about all of those different things, don't you? Because you have to think about how the car is accelerating in your and how much role that is going to be imposing on the car and all of those things that Graham talked about. So I think you'd agree it gets complex quickly. Even when you do something as seemingly innocuous as driving around a gentle right-hand bend, it's just not as simple as it seems at first glance. So we're in a drone, looking down on the top of the bend, cars going from before the bend to after the bend or during the bend. Let's think about exactly what happens there, okay? You're not actually just going around a bend, which is probably how you think about it, and probably how you should think about it when you're in the moment driving around a bend. But for the purpose of being a beer garden engineer, you have to break that down and you have to say, well, to get there, we have to translate the car along the y-axis and then we have to translate it across the x-axis and then we have to yaw it as well by just the Goldilocks amount. And it really is the Goldilocks amount times three, okay? Because if you're not getting it, just bang on. We have a name for that and it's called crashing, which is something you generally don't want to do. And this is a really basic example. 
even then, things are not as simple as they seem because if the road is curved at all in the altitude dimension, like in the Z dimension, if you're going uphill or downhill or there's a crest in the middle of the bend or something, what's going to happen then? Not only are you going to be introducing Z-type inertial loads into the vehicle, you're also going to be rolling in the bend. And if you go over a bump, like a glorified speed hump or something, there's going to be pitching as well. So all of a sudden, we've got movement in X and Y and Z, and then we're rolling and yawing and also pitching the vehicle. And we're doing that in terms of displacement, velocity and acceleration. And it's all happening contemporaneously. So, think <coughs> you'd agree, this can be substantially more complex than most users of vehicles ever give it credit for. So, with that in mind, let us talk about inertial loads, like inertial forces. Inertia, inertial forces, virtual forces. It's all such scary physics lab stuff, isn't it? And yet inertia is one of the simplest concepts to wrap one's brain around and it's all orbiting the mass of every object, okay? Not so much its weight. If you want the thought experiment on that, let's just say we're up in the International Space Station and astronaut A loses his cool, picks up a hammer and throws it at astronaut B. The hammer's weightless, it's in space, and yet interacting with the head of astronaut B is going to be equally bad as interacting here on Earth, right? And that's because of inertia, mass, and interaction. It's got nothing to do with weight. Here on Earth, let us say you're walking down the street without a care in the world one beautiful spring day and your heart is as light as a field of butterflies in spring. And then you look down on the pavement and you see a brick. And you hate bricks because mommy left daddy for a brick back in 1979. Bastard. So you look around and you kick the shit out of that brick because you think you can get away with it and yet you wake up on the floor writhing in agony because the brick has voiced its disinclination to get moving so quickly by overcoming all of the structural integrity of the bones in the front of your foot. Yes, bastard. So that's kind of inertia, which is wrapped up in Newton's first law of motion. And even though I'm rocking this punching bag backwards and forwards annoyingly, Newton's first law says the bag would just be happier to hang here motionless and just continue to do what it was doing unless forces act upon it, right? That means that if I want to get a stationary punching bag to move, I have to push it. And if I want it to move gently, I have to push it gently. And if I want to put its lights out, which never happens because a punching bag is just a tool designed to suck out your soul and leave you a withered husk. But if I do want to put its lights out, I have to hit it somewhat more enthusiastically. Nothing says good night up close and personal like a, like a good tap with the elbow. <laughs> For more tips like this, my other website, misspentyouth.com, but this is the first part of the whole inertia problem and why people find it difficult to understand physics, okay? Because I feel like I'm pushing that bag, okay? But what's really happening is my elbow is moving towards the bag and it's happy to keep moving, okay? What the bag does is stop it. So I'm really experiencing 
the deceleration of my elbow. I'm experiencing a force pushing this way on my elbow and I know that's going to happen because my elbow is going to stop on the virtual chin of my opponent. Okay, it's like boom, stop and it can only stop if a force acts on it this way and yet I feel like I'm pushing. Okay, and the same thing happens to you in the corner of a car. When you go around a corner, the car's going one way and you feel yourself thrown the other way, but in fact you are being dragged around the corner with the car. And this feeling you've got, which is the exact opposite of what's actually happening, is the result of what I would call a virtual inertial force. Okay, and this can happen across or backwards and forwards or up and down or in roll or pitch or in yaw and they can all happen at the same friggin' time. So that's not like totally complex or anything, is it? Like, you get yourself into a fighter jet and go divergent on all three axes at once. Good luck with that. It can happen in cars as well, all of these kinds of virtual inertial interactions, and it can be quite disorienting. But to think about physics is to leave it all behind. It's a little bit like getting into that rabbit hole, right, in the matrix. You've got to see how deep the rabbit hole really goes, and you have to leave a lot of those, what am I really doing here, kinds of perceptions. You've just got to leave them all behind. In a car, it plays out like this. Say you're in a drag race and you nail the accelerator. Instantly, the nose comes up in the air and your head gets thrown back, right? That's how it feels and that's due to your inertia. It's not a real force, this head throwing back thing. It's more of a virtual force. So, to demystify that, a brainy but dead French dude named Jean Laurent d'Alembert had this neat hack for Newton's second law for this. He developed it back in the 18th century. He essentially said that the sum of forces acting on a system minus the time derivative of the momentum was zero as long as the mass didn't change. Here's a test later, okay? It converts accelerating frames of reference into static ones for analyses by imposing virtual forces of minus ma upon them. So it's a neat way of turning Newton's second law back into Newton's first law, even if the thing you're examining is accelerating, okay? And if you do this kind of thing for, you know, four to six years, you walk out of university with a shiny new engineering degree. <laughs> Such F-U-N endlessly. But in this case, okay, the drag racing case, your head is not really thrown back. It just feels that way. It's just kind of letting you know that it wanted to stay where it was all along while the car decided to shunt itself forward. And what you're feeling, more or less, is a virtual inertial force in the opposite direction, like backwards. Thanks very much, Jean Laurent. So, if a kangaroo hops out on the drag strip, always so interesting, you jam on the brakes, okay, and your head gets pushed forward, only not really, dude. It just seems that way again, subjectively, thanks to d'Alembert. The nose dives down, right? Which is kind of the same thing, only it's a reverse inertial force, like a virtual force. Force. Force and force. Whatever. Inertia. D'Alembert. You're just accelerating in the other direction, okay? This rotating backwards and forwards in pitch, okay, this back accelerating forwards under brakes, is in response to virtual inertial loads. And you felt both effects every time you've been in a car, especially a taxi. That modification where they replace the accelerator with the on-off switch in a taxi, like, dude, 
so effective. Obviously, this happens when you go around a corner, okay? Because if you tip the car in hard into a right-hand bend, just think about that for a moment. You turn the wheel to the right like this, and all of a sudden, what's the thing that you notice the most? You might notice the body roll, but you really feel yourself getting tugged over this way to the left, pushed like this to the left. It's like an invisible hand reaches out and nudges you across, yeah? That's not really what happens at all because you're here going in a straight line just before the bend and then you turn the car and the car accelerates rapidly in this lateral way over to the right and your body, because of inertia, because of Newton's first law, says, hang on a minute, I just want to stay where I was laterally. I don't want this acceleration. You're going to have to work on me. But what you feel when the car departs over this way is the profound sense of a push to the left. And that, of course, is because of our froggy dead mate, D'Alembert. So that's the basics, okay? If you get this, you will understand roll moments, which we will be balls deep in in just a sec, I promise. And if we're lucky, only 10% of you will die in an attempt to achieve that level of knowledge, which is better odds than Russian roulette, when you think about it. And I'll still have a quarter of a million subscribers, even if that happens, so that's okay. Olight makes some of the best torches ever, and I've been using them for months now. And as you know, I will not recommend a product to you unless I use it and I trust it. And let's face it, like when you really need a torch, you kind of really need it. Dead car, like car dead as a maggot out there in the boonies, no light anywhere. Functioning torch, kind of handy. So the torch has to be reliable and its deployment has to be seamless in a bunch of different situations and it has to pack a punch when you need it and yet not be so big that you become disinclined to carry it every day. If you're not interested in this kind of thing, okay, skip ahead, dude, to the kinematics part and don't complain about it in the comments because nobody cares, least of all me. A big Olight discount for you non-ahead skippers tonight from 8pm. Details in just a sec. This is the new Olight Warrior Mini 2, which is a substantial upgrade on the original Mini. And here's why I am going to carry this one every day. Here it is next to the original version 1 Warrior Mini. It's still pocket-sized, but it's 17% brighter than the original Mini. The beam throw is over 200 metres. The maximum output is 1,750 lumens, so it's practically a lightsaber. And in extremis, up close and personal, it is kind of guaranteed to degrade any would-be assailant's commitment to mugging you. Not that that happens all that often, I hope. Tail switch for tactical operation and a side switch for finesse. And that's so well thought out in my opinion. Tail switch is so important for operating under pressure because your fine motor skills quickly go out the window in these high pressure situations. Thanks very much to cortisol and noradrenaline and evolutionary programming. There are five light output modes, 1750 as discussed, and then 500 lumens, 120, 15, and finally just one lumen in firefly mode, which is really good for not destroying your night vision, but allowing you to find something that you need in the moment. 
great for camping. Uh, dial it in with the side switch, right? Whichever output you want. 120 is fine for general use, like changing a fuse or a spare tire, playing doctor, whatever. And it'll run for 19 hours like that on 150 between charges. Most doctor games do not last quite that long, I note. Speaking from bitter personal experience, huge upgrade with the Mini 2 is the new reversible pocket clip. You can carry it bezel up or bezel down in your pocket now. It's entirely your choice. Bezel down, I think, for the speedy deployment win, and probably best on your non-dominant side too. I am a somewhat sinister lefty, so I carry the Mini 2 and my Leatherman on the right, plus a few other useful EDC items, which I do not leave home without, typically. Olight Warrior Mini 2 is waterproof to 2 metres and drop tested to 1.5. It comes with a detachable lanyard clip, a lanyard, and a cool circular carabiner. I don't actually use any of that, just the pocket clip. The other stuff to me is just too likely to get in the way if you need to deploy it quickly under pressure, so I carry mine as a clean skin, just with the pocket clip. But your mileage may, of course, vary depending on how you use your torch. Coolest recharger ever on these things too. The magnet thing is just so simple. It's USB on the other end and no rubber covers and ports to uncover on the torch. Nothing to plug in. A politician could do it. Deeply recessed lens, which is nice and protected. There's a striking bezel for zombie DNA collection and related discouraging of things like car company PR operatives and industry lobbyists. So that's nice. A five-year warranty on these things too. Up to 35% off from 8pm tonight, which would be Monday the 21st of June, until midnight tomorrow. Also the Olight Freya, which is a pretty cool torch to keep in your car. Link in the description to all of that. If you miss the sale, like dude, subscribe now and hit the bell. But if you do, Olight has just upped the X-Sale discount to 12% for auto expert viewers. Just use the code AEJC10. That's in the description too. All the details down there. And now, let us bleed profusely from the ears. <laughs>
in one plane and then do it in another plane and where do the lines intersect and there's your mass center or you could calculate it if you know how to do that you could subtract the voids and add the edges and all of that stuff and figure out exactly where the mass center really is this mighty king has a mass center and obviously it's got a slightly heavier end and a slightly lighter end not unlike a car and you can figure that out you can say well the mass center must be slightly further up towards the heavy end than in the middle it's kind of there and probably right down about there okay and this is an important thing to think about as well if we assume that the the actual length of the handle was weightless for the purpose of some analysis we could think about this like a car with a heavy end here and a lighter end here you could have a mass center here and a mass center back here as well and that's kind of how they roll in R&D with cars they figure out where the mass center of the front end of the car is and the back end and that's kind of important because that affects the roll performance at the front and the rear and it kind of affects it like this so here's a car that's going round a right hand bend if you're looking at it from the front or a left hand bend if you're looking at it rear on that's a brain bender too isn't it anyway what we're seeing is inertial roll and you see this all the time you don't need to debate whether or not it really happens because you've seen cars driving around bends and you've been in one and if the bend is this way we're looking at it arse on the roll is going to be that way and if the bend is this way to the right and we're looking at it nose on the roll is going to be that way because whatever way the bend goes the roll goes the other way that's just how this rolls literally in this case so we've got this inertial force and we've got this roll and if you looked at it you could figure out where the center of the roll was like where is it pivoting around when it rolls that's kind of what we're talking about here you need to know where the roll center of a car is so that you can work with the mass center and the roll center to figure out how it's actually going to roll depending on how fast and what the radius of the bend is okay but the roll center which is the second big thing you need to know is critical to the performance of the car in roll and it's just a geometric thing it's a point about which the pivoting takes place when the body rolls in a bend and you can have a front roll center and a rear roll center and they can be different things like the roll center is typically just above the road that's how they just organize the suspension geometry the rear roll center is generally a little bit higher than the front roll center so the rear roll center could be up here and the front roll center could be down here and this line in between those two points is typically called the roll axis so if you're ever reading some suspension diatribe and they talk about the roll axis that's generally what they mean is the line between the rear roll center and the front roll center the rear is generally higher okay anyway mass center roll center that's kind of important it's just like using a spanner really and here we are finally at the money shot cracking the kooky code of what a roll moment really is congratulations if you've made it all this way without a big pool of blood forming all over the floor you've had the cognitive cojones to follow the bouncing ball all the way to the simplest perhaps bit of the whole show a roll moment is just a torque okay and a torque is just a turning effect it's exactly like the spanner the diagram on the previous page is exactly like the spanner the roll center is the nut 
and the inertial force is the hand and the distance between the roll center and the mass center is just the length of the wrench, okay? A moment is a torque, is a couple, is a rotating effect that is really just determined by the length of the spanner and the size of the push that you give it. And that's really all that a roll moment is. So the inertial force depends on the bend, okay? It depends on the mass of the car and how fast you're driving it around the bend and a whole bunch of other things play into it as well. But it's really just that inertial force that d'Alembert would have been so pleased to have us all discussing today a few hundred years later. And the moment is just a thing that tips the body over. It's the torque that operates like this, tipping the body over. And it's just force times distance. So one of the things that we really need to discuss here is EVs particularly EVs derived from internal combustion platforms because there is a profound effect on the spanner. And it works like this, okay? When you turn an internal combustion car into an EV, you lower the mass center because you put a dirty big battery down here. The overall mass goes up, but the mass center falls substantially because you remove a big fat engine that's sitting fairly high and you put in a big fat battery that's sitting fairly low. So instead of this, all right, what you get is more like that in a particular bend. And that has a profound effect on the amount of roll. It stiffens the car right up. It's like putting in an anti-roll bar that's <laughs> this thick or something. And the reason is because the spanner is shorter. The push is similar. The push might even go up a little bit for any particular bend at any particular speed because the mass of an EV is higher. But the reduction in the mass center is a profound effect, whereas the higher mass, not so much. And you end up with a much smaller roll moment. And at the same time, you've got a heavier car that really needs to be compliant in bump and things of that nature. Okay, when you go over bumps and speed humps and things like that. And all of the hard points that are engineered into the structure are unchangeable. And they define the location of the roll center. So you've had this reduction in the mass center, reduction in the roll moment, and if you drive an EV, you will notice one or both of these things. One thing could be really stiff in roll. The other thing could be really floppy in bump, or both, okay? Because when you do this kind of thing on an established platform, you've got a non-ideal spanner in play. And you can bet, sure as shit, the designers figured out the car for the spanner that they had organized based on the locations of the mass center for internal combustion. And you've just gone and dicked with it by putting all these batteries down nice and low. And that explains the inherent suspension deficiency of a lot of EVs that were based on internal combustion. And that's why EV specific platforms, which is gonna be a bit of a buzzword for the next decade or so, that's why they are kinda of so important and it's not so much because of some intrinsic thing about EVs, why they need their own platform, we need to differentiate them from a marketing point of view or something. It really has to do more with this fundamental uh, compromise that exists in all of the first generation EVs that flowed from internal combustion platforms. Anyway, that's roll moment. It's the spanner, the mass center, the roll center, the spanner, the turn from inertial forces. Thanks very much, D'Alembert. If you've made it this far, hashtag respect, dude. This is a pretty esoteric topic and guaranteed some people didn't, you know, and 
we might have to have a national holiday in relation to them, but not for some time.